This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we discuss Splunk Smart Store and NetApp Storage Grid certification process. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio and with me today. I have a whole bunch of special guests, uh, given that we're virtual. We don't have to be in a room together. We can be on Zoom. So uh, with us today from Splunk, uh, none other than Josh Atwell. Hi, Josh. How you doing? Hey, Justin. How's it going? It's really exciting to be back. Good. I'm glad you're excited. I am equally excited, if you cannot tell from my demeanor. Uh, Josh, what do you do at Splunk and how do I reach you? Uh, I run research and advocacy at Splunk, and the absolute best place to reach me has consistently been on Twitter, Josh underscore Atwell. All right, excellent. So um, because Josh is here today, you know, we are going to be talking about Splunk, but not just Splunk. We're going to be talking about Splunk with a NetApp perspective, you know, how to deploy it and, and, you know, what sort of things we've done to certify things. Uh, And to do that, we have the Splunk team as, you know, from NetApp, as well as the object storage team from NetApp, starting with Steven Prashnewski. So Steven, what do you do here at NetApp and how do I reach you? So I am the manager for the Storage Grid Tech Market Engineers, and you can get me on email at sprch at netapp.com. All right. Also with us today, James Bradshaw. James, what do you do here at NetApp and how do we reach you? Hi, yes. I'm a technical marketing engineer on the hybrid cloud group, uh, solutions group. Um, The best way you can reach me is jbradsha at netapp.com. All right. Also with us, Raj Grewal. Raj, what do you do and how do we reach you? Hey, Justin. Um, Yeah, so I'm a senior architect. I'm the America's Solutions Architect team, uh, cover AAL. Um, AI ML Ops Solutions along with Splunk. And the best way to get a hold of me is email. So it's R-G-R-E-W-A-L at netapp.com. All right. And last but not least, I saved him for last because I was going to admit this was going to be hard for me to do the last name. So Joseph Candatil Parambal. Did I say that right, Joseph? That was Joseph? pretty good. Oh. Yes, that was pretty good. Yes. <laughs> I'm a solutions architect for the Storage Grid Group. Uh, I've been with the company for over a year now. And I mainly focus on uh, media and entertainment solutions. And I've also been working on Splunk for the past couple of months with uh, James and Raj. Um, And really happy and excited to be talking about it today. You can reach me uh, at uh, Twitter uh, on um, at the rate Joseph Ntap or uh, it's my first name dot last name at netapp.com. All right. Excellent. And if you did not write all these things down, we can we'll have them in the show notes on the blog so you don't have to look for the uh, contact information for all these guests. All right. So uh, as you've guessed, we're talking about Splunk and object storage and NetApp here today. And, you know, if you're not familiar with what Splunk is, um, Josh is here to tell us all about what it is and what it can do for your organization. Sure thing. Yeah. So Splunk is, we call ourselves the world's first data to everything platform. And we really work to remove barriers between data and action, helping organizations collect information throughout their environments, throughout their systems, in order to get visibility in what's happening, and then be able to act on that. And we do that from any data source, anywhere on any time scale. 
Um, and we have started, we had started really around logs. That's what we're most known for is, is logging. Um, expanded out into security. So big in IT operations, big in security. And we've grown considerably over the last two years in particular in the application development and DevOps space as well. So you know, we, we work to provide uh, insights from data so we got a big data connection with Net out there um, to to help people make decisions and be informed with what they're doing. Is Splunk the sound uh, that data makes as it's hitting the data lake? No, it is not. You know what? It should be. I think I, I think should. I could work with that. I'm going to pull that into something. Uh, maybe one of my Twitch programs. Um, but uh, no, Splunk is actually kind of derivative of spelunking or cave diving. Oh, I get it. So yep. you're like mining for data yeah something along those lines exploring exploring a little data pickaxe going on here a little it's like minecraft exactly <laughs> all right so you know we have a an idea of what splunk is and there's this product that splunk offers i understand called smart store so what is that mm -hmm. josh uh so smart store it's really simple uh from a top level, uh, it's the capacity to use S3 targets with Splunk. Uh, so traditionally with Splunk, uh, if you were on-prem, you would be storing all of your information in indexes that are sitting right on top of your hardware. That would be what used to be spinning disk, became flash, uh, and those, those would then sit in tiers. What we did with Smart Store is we were able to deliver a distributed scale-out model using S3 as a target so that an organization can uh, implement Smart Store, have their data um, go to that target, be able to have much larger scale, um, more cost-effective, better data retention, um, and you know, with some of the vendors like NetApp, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, pr providing replication and other value-added services on top of that. Um, you know, this was obviously a big. Um, piece of importance as we moved into the cloud and we were driving more um, customers into the cloud. That was uh, a feature and a capability that a lot of customers were wanting. Um, it was something that we needed as well. And so it's really exciting. I'm, I, I'm trying to remember exactly when it came out. I think it was like 2018. So it's been several years now um, that, that we've had that capability. So is Smart Store basically like a tiering, like an automatic tiering for Splunk and in, in do you define the tiers yourself or is it smart enough to, to know which tiers are which? Yeah. So the system manages all the tiering. And so when you initiate smart store and, you know, I know the team on here works with it a lot more than, than I have. I haven't touched it. I think since it came out, <laughs> but uh, what, what it does is it does provide that as more of a retention tier. It's intended that it, it shows up, um, you know, you put it in the config file and then it will, um, based on the settings that you have, move data onto the to the S3 target as part of that that index. Okay, so so Raj, you do some architecting with Splunk and, and NetApp, of course, um, and you've spent some time at Splunk. You know, can you go a little deeper into the Smart Store functionality and and how it fits into the NetApp architecture? Yeah, yeah, but first, I think just to add to Josh, I think it'd be good for the audience who's listening to this to talk about kind of uh, how it differs from the Splunk Classic architecture, right? So from a, from a Splunk Classic point of view, um, storage and compute were not decoupled, right? So that meant if I, you know, my growing, uh, my data volumes requires more uh, infrastructure uh, spend on capital there. If I had to add new indexers in response to data growth, or for example, I'm adding a 
premium Splunk module like enterprise security inside my data center. I have to scale out uh, the storage also, which then, um, you know, because most of the searches, uh, Josh, I, I heard, uh, I think it was two years ago at Splunk Cons, I think in the Splunk cloud service, uh, 90% of searches are done within 24 hours and then 98% are done within 30 days. So, um, you know, with Smart Store, which makes it really great is the architectural goal of this is just to minimize the amount of data on the local storage while maintaining the fast indexing and search capabilities that are typically associated with a Splunk Enterprise deployment. So when they do that by disaggregating storage and compute, you can get a better efficient resource uh, utilization. Um, now you can scale compute and storage on demand, which then also reduces the overall TCO of the solution um, because you can utilize flexible storage options like storage grid. Um, and from a storage grid point of view, um, since the bulk of the data is in what's called warm now, um, which receives from the Splunk cache manager, uh, the storage platform is providing all data services, such as protection, uh, replication, uh, et cetera. So with NetApp, we offer a variety of solutions, whether they're on-prem or in the cloud. And I would imagine Smart Store would be able to discern between something that's on-prem and the cloud. And that's one of the reasons why it's attractive to someone using NetApp storage. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. So can you tell me a little bit more about what sort of deployments you've seen with Splunk on NetApp? You know, are you seeing them exclusively with ONTAP or are you seeing them in other realms such as E-Series as well as Storage Grid? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. So um, the first thing for everyone to kind of realize with, with Splunk is the Splunk I.O. profile is typically the exact opposite of a relational database like SQL and Oracle. So typically when data is being ingested and indexes are being built within Splunk, it's about 70 to 80% sequential writes. And when searches are being run or reports are being created or dashboards are being viewed, that's 20 to 30% random reads. So it's more of a high performance compute type of workload. So uh, for the hot tiers within Splunk, we actually recommend our EF platform. Um, and then for in smart store deployments for the remote object store piece, that's where we recommend uh, NetApp Storage Grid. So. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned Storage Grid. I, I know that people are mostly familiar with NetApp and ONTAP. So with Storage Grid, it offers another solution for hosting data, usually through the, you know, dealing with the S3 interface. Uh, Stephen, if you could do a little more in-depth of what Storage Grid is uh, for the customers who aren't, or the people out there who aren't aware of what Storage Grid is. So Storage Grid is NetApp's enterprise object storage solution. And then, of course, kind of the next question is, well, you know, what is object storage? And it is a different way of managing data versus file. The objects are stored in a flat namespace with a unique identifier. And what that allows you to do is behind that kind of single namespace, just scale resources, right? Scale performance, scale capacity, and even span over, you know, multiple sites. And that's one of the reasons that this works so well with Splunk Smart Store. This is kind of like, you know, if somebody asked me, what's the, you know, what's a solution that just absolutely needs storage grid? And it would be this, right? I mean, you know, the idea of being able to add more resources, like once you start using Splunk, you find that you want to monitor more and more things and, and you quickly get into, you know, a lot of, a lot of data per day. Uh, we had a really good customer session at Insight last fall, the customer called Highland, and they're ingesting, you know, literally terabytes per day, you know, well beyond what you could, you know, kind of scale reasonably on a traditional NAS system. And so for them to be able to go to a single namespace, they didn't have to worry about, you know, 
what happens when I add resources, right? All that was transparent behind the scenes. And then the other thing is they were doing this in a multi-site scenario, right? So they're actually spanning multiple data centers, which you know greatly simplified things like disaster recovery, business continuity. Um, that you know S3 namespace was always available for them. And when you say adding resources, are you talking about strictly capacity or are you talking about compute as well? So for object storage, it can be both, right? That's one of the, the really, you know, I think interesting things about object storage and storage grid in particular is if you need more storage, right, you, you could add storage to individual nodes. So if you look at our SG6060s, if you buy them today and, you know, six months down the road, you just need more space, but performance is fine. You just add another shelf. Um, if you find, on the other hand, that it is you need more I.O., you need more performance, you can add more nodes. So you, you can scale the storage and compute somewhat independently. So, Josh, with Splunk, is it smart enough to detect the new pieces being added to the environment? I know it's a single namespace, so it doesn't need to update that. But if if you were to add a second namespace, you know, what's the process of adding that namespace into the mix? And can it can Splunk be you know used to to span both namespaces? as kind of a load balancing mechanism. <laughs> You're gonna love this answer. I have no idea. <laughs> All right, Sorry, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I, I, and I think that's actually one of the cool things is Splunk doesn't need to know, right? Splunk. Yeah. So, and JB and, and Joseph will get into this, right? But, you know, they set up this dual site scenario with a multi-site load balancer. And so Splunk didn't really know when storage grid on site A was gone and storage grid on site B came up. It just kept writing to the same, you know, the same name. It, re it resolved, you know, s3.netapp.com, let's say, for example, and just kept working. Yeah. And I, I was going to highlight, like, you know, with a Splunk deployment, you you throw in your config file where you're targeting. Um, a lot of the times, the intelligence that happens on the back end, you know, it's uh, it's not necessary for us to know. Yeah, Justin, to answer your question, it's just a single namespace. Well, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Well, so within, that, that yeah. part's a single namespace. But oh. if you add if you yep. added a second namespace of storage grid, right? For if you wanted to have like a second site, you know, would would it be pretty seamless to add you know to configure Splunk to notify you of that new site? And then use it maybe as a as kind of like a, a failover or a tiering uh, solution there. Like you know, we'll have Splunk can. Yeah, so Splunk's tiering. oblivious to that point. So yeah. Splunk's oblivious, and actually, um, and JB and Joseph will talk more about this. But um, Splunk prefers to be run in an active-active deployment. So it's very rare that a customer would deploy Splunk in two locations in an active-passive type of architecture. It's really meant to be, you know be able to search from site A to site B and be transparent to the end user. So, okay. So, yeah. and, and I'll, I'll add, I'll also add a, a few more points here. Um, when you add more data sources and you want to uh, tier your data to a different bucket on storage grid, uh, you basically add a new stanza in your um, indexes.config file. Uh, that's, that's in your spot store configuration. Um, that way you will have two different targets. But um, that's if you want to split your uh, tiering off to two different uh, buckets separately. But then let's say you want to expand your remote store tier itself. Um, let's say you, you started off with a single site um, in your Splunk environment and you want to add another site. Um, it, Splunk would still write to the same namespace, uh, but it wouldn't know that it, we have added another site. Um, and how this works is you, you would add a GSLB in between uh, that is a global load balancer, which will take the request and it sort of spreads out uh, based on where the request is coming from. Okay. So let's go a little bit more in depth with the work that you and uh, James did 
with the smart store configuration and the qualifications. So, um, you know, let's talk about first why you'd select something like an object storage instead of a NAS deployment for Splunk. So object storage has this unique advantage of, uh, uh, of uh, being lower cost uh, and also uh, the ability to scale uh, to even petabyte and sometimes to exabyte scale. Um, so comparing that to the traditional architecture, that is a classic architecture, when you have everything in the single tier, uh, you're not getting uh, the, the value of your money that, that you've put in, that is when you have everything in your single tier. But once, uh, like Raj mentioned, they, they, they've decoupled the compute and storage, then at that point, you're sizing your compute for your, uh, for your searches, but your capacity is all uh, on uh, on smart store at this point and you can scale that so it's lower cost so it overall lowers your tco and also is able to handle the large or, or uh, big scale capacity that you need for your splunk deployments okay so cost effectiveness is is going to be a major consideration there especially when you're dealing with with data in that amount right most of the time you're not necessarily looking for ultra high performance for these for these workloads right Right. You, you, you want to size it for what you need rather than, um, you know, giving the same amount of uh, performance to all the, the full data set that you have on Splunk. Yeah, and I'll, I'll follow up with what Raj had mentioned earlier about um, search patterns, like how, how, how people search. And uh, it's, it's still true that most people do most of their searching within the last 30 days, but we have seen a considerable growth in customers who are not only wanting to search against a historical record to be able to say, you know, how does this moment in time compare to a quarter ago, six months ago, a year ago? Um, but we're also seeing a dramatic increase in customers who are wanting to be able to perform those types of searches or perform searches against multiple different types of data um, in order to gain insights to be able to look back as to, you know, uh, for instance, as we apply more AI and ML technologies into the work we do, that historical data has a lot of value to be able to inform and teach the system on, on how, um, how it should expect behavior within the environment. So um, more and more organizations are looking to retain data for longer from more sources and more locations and trying to correlate those and, and find insights across those. So something like storage grid and using smart store makes that more palatable to the budget, if you will. Right. And that's a very good point um, where We've talked about scale um, and and resiliency, but then there is a certain amount or or um, certain amount of performance that are that is really expected out of your object storage platform. So it 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 need not really be a cheap and deep uh, object storage where you know it just you write once and never read it. Um, and storage grid is optimized for for uh, a performant workload like this. So talk to me a little bit about this qualification process you went through with with SmartStore. You know, what did it involve and what did you have to do to get this all done? Well, to begin with, uh, I guess uh, there were two it was twofold. One was uh, qualifying it for single site uh, and the second part was qualifying it for multi-site and for single site um, we we basically looked at functionality first that is um, you know if whether we support all the S3 commands that are required by Splunk. Um, the, and after that, that was the performance uh, where are we able to reach or, or able to achieve the performance that, that Splunk is looking for in terms of you know, long-term searches. Um, and then when it comes to uh, multi-site, uh, you know, performance is key, uh, as well as uh, the ability to fail over uh, seamlessly without 
disrupting a Splunk workload was also key. And that uh, storage grid brought in a lot of value uh, to that because um, a lot of our competitors, you know, have to configure uh, or use external tools to actually enable that sort of a data flow. But then uh, within with Storage Grid, uh, we have data something called ILM, which is our data management policies uh, built into it. So uh, with Storage Grid, you need not do anything special. Once you configure your data management policies um, in your Storage Grid, uh, the failover happens seamlessly as well as when you recover backup. Uh, storage grid syncs back all the data and all of that happens you know automatically and it is all built into the software that's and that's that really differentiates us from from the rest of our competitors so what sort of metrics was splunk looking for as far as performance and failover times and that sort of thing so i believe they were looking for um you know data throughput from somewhere around 100 mb to 800 mb and raj can add to it as well um and we actually went over the upper limit uh, after we did our testing. Um, there were two parts of the test. You know, there was what was called basic and there was called scale. But uh, from a high level, what we'd have to do is ingest uh, terabytes of Splunk data over a number of days. And then we would perform uh, baseline searches to record um, latency, throughput, uh, all from the Splunk console uh, point of view. And then we'd run certain scenarios, right? Bringing an entire site down. So that's including the Splunk indexers, uh, the hot cache tier, and their own object store, simulate more ingest, and then bring up site one um, and rerun those searches and capture all those metrics. And then there was another test where we just uh, caused a remote object store failure to, to what uh, Joseph was talking about earlier with the, with the global load balancer, right? To where... Can the users in site one, even though the remote object store is down, still access data that was already replicated to the remote object store in site two? So it was a lot of those uh, scenarios. And with these scenarios, are you using a storage grid using spinning drives or is it like a f- all flash storage grid? I know we have storage grids that can do all flash. You know, what sort of requirements were there to, to achieve the numbers that you needed? So we used our uh, uh, ST6060 uh, storage nodes for this testing. Um, and this this particular storage node has 60 drives and two of those drives are SSD drives that's used for caching and rest of the drives were nearline SAS. And what are the cache drives? Yeah. What, what are they trying to cache? Are they caching like metadata objects or you know, what, what sort of things are involved there? It was metadata. Uh, it was uh, caching metadata objects. Uh, and also we have within the Linux, um, you know, we, uh, it was about uh, 70 gig of object caching. Uh, Steve, you can correct me if I'm being dishonest here. Yeah, so that's one of the things when, if you look at our performance testing that we do outside of Splunk Smart Store, we always try to be very, very conservative. So before we run a retest, we will go through and flush our cache. What we've seen is, especially if you're running kind of a more generic benchmark, like something like Cosbench, and you you write an object, and then you immediately read that object back, you're going to read it from cache, and you'll get these amazing performance results, right? And you'll also notice that there's no disk activity, right? Because you're just reading it back from cache. So that was part of the the work that Joseph and JB did, was to go back and and flush those caches to make sure that we're getting kind of, you know, worst case scenario performance, which still turned out to be surprisingly good. Uh, JB, I wonder if you could talk about like the steps that 
were in the Splunk smart store test scripts where the kind of the failback and, and reversal of replication, you know, kind of talk about it because I think that's kind of interesting what it illustrates what you have to do on some other platform. So if their failover and failback steps were like, you know, 20 something steps, you know, could you talk about how, like how many steps do we have to do a storage grid or. And, oh, very few steps. So uh, for example, in our site failure test and our remote store failure test, um, you know, so basically all we had to do on our end was basically bring down either the Splunk components or bring down the storage grid uh, remote store and um, allow it to go down. And then we would go about doing our failover testing. And then once we're done, um, basically all we have to do is just power up or uh, restore connectivity to our storage grid. And uh, within minutes, our storage grid was back up and running and replication was happening in the back end and it happened in a very fast, uh, fast time. So no extra steps. You didn't have to, there's no concept of reverse replication. It just you know, it's those data management rules that Joseph was talking about that just kind of make it happen behind the scenes. I've got an object. You told me to store it at site A and site B. I've only got it at site B. I'm going to go make a copy on site A. It yes. Handles that yep. up for you. And this adds, adds on to storage grids value add um, from a manage, management standpoint. It was very, very simple to manage and not too many um, not too many buttons or nerd knobs that you had to press in order to make this happen. It was just a lot of it was just built in to the system, which makes it great. And then, you know, we trigger the failover or in a real case scenario, if the site were to go down um, in this particular solution with the global load balancer, failover will happen to the site B automatically because we already have all the pieces in place in order for this to happen. Yeah, it's interesting that you're trying to bypass the cache because I, I get it because you want to, you know, think about the worst case scenario, but you know, it's fairly unlikely that you're going to be not needing that cache most of the time, right? I mean, you're going to be hitting that cache pretty often. So in oh. a real world scenario, you're going to have the cache in place. So the performance is probably sure. going to be even better. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially if you're reading it back immediately. And the other nice thing about Splunk Smart Store is they write nice big objects that like object storage loves that, right? It's like an 800 megabyte object that they're storing in the storage grid. And then I think they're reading it back at 128 megabyte chunks. So, you know, Splunk did their homework, right? They built this for object storage. Um, this is right in, you know, especially storage grid sweet spot, right? We can really handle this and give you really good performance. In fact, you know, some of the performance results we got back were, you know, a little hard to believe. They had us test again, came back again. And, and you know, from what we've been told, we are like five to six times faster than, than some of the competitors who have, you know, executed this before. Yes, during testing, me and jo Joseph can uh, vouch for this. We were doing a test and we've seen the results from like, that can't be real. Let's let's try it again. And uh, it was pretty consistent uh, during our testing. Right. We yeah. have to run our tests multiple times just to believe that, that this is true. <laughs> so I, it's kind of interesting. You, you, know, you see these numbers that you can't really fathom, right? You're like, oh, man, what, are we doing something wrong here? And then you just go back and you check it. And it's like, oh, wow, it really was actually that fast. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I, mean, I think the big thing for folks to understand is that you know, storage grid isn't just some legacy all-flash architecture architecture, and just have an S3 protocol bolted on, right? I mean, you know, NetApp, you know, storage grid is based on over 20 years of innovation, right? With a global customer base that, you know, for customers who want enterprise object stores inside their data centers and have it be a, a hybrid crowd platform, um, you know, it has the, uh, the lineage to where, Everything that we're talking, you know, a lot of the other object stores that are out there, they don't have that history of development and, 
um, you know, feature enhancements. Yeah. And people don't realize this, but you know, like storage grid wasn't always NetApp, right? It was another company altogether. It was Bycast, I think originally, right? You're correct. Yeah. In 2010, that's when, uh, that's when NetApp acquired Bycast. Yeah. That was when, that was when NetApp had them. And before that, they were probably around for a few years prior to that, I would imagine. Right. First uh, production deployment Bycast was 2001. So I, I do think that's another thing to kind of emphasize is that you know, this has been around a long time. You know, this is nothing. We've already had customers deploying this in production, right? They actually didn't wait for the certification. They went ahead and did it. Um, and, you know, you know, some of the things that are inside a storage grid, right? Just the kind of the, you know, long-term care and feeding things that make life easier. It's there because it's been around for 20 years, like Raj was saying, right? These are things that if you just came out of the box, you, you wouldn't have thought of. At the same time, though, we are adding those new features with those, you know, two two releases per year, right? So, we, you know, we've got a release coming up in May, right? We're rolling out new features constantly. So speaking of new features, I would imagine that beyond the performance benefits, there's some feature benefits as well. So what sort of features does Storage Grid offer that some of the competitors can't offer with Splunk? Especially in a multi-site sort of uh, situation that really shines, right? So... You know, as Joseph and JB were saying, it's it's those active-active uh, data management rules that do it for you automatically. So with a lot of other vendors, they're going to rely on an external engine to copy something from site A to site B, which means when you fail over, you then have to reverse that replication. You need to wait a certain amount of time for those objects to catch up on the other side. Storage Grid does that for you automatically. And the other part is we, you know, looking at most Storage Grid instances out there through auto support, most of them are running multiple workloads. So, you know, you're running Splunk Smart Store, you're using it for Fabric Pool, maybe you're using it for another workload. All those workloads are securely isolated from each other. And we've also got quality of service rules to help there as well. Yeah, and to add to what Steven just said, we think about it, right? You know, for customers who are deploying Splunk Smart Store, there's really two key stakeholders, right? The Splunk application owner and then IT infrastructure. And we kind of boil it down for both of these groups, what Splunk admins really care about is that content is placed in the right location at the right time and on the right storage tier. And from their point of view, that's from the smart store cache to the remote object store. And then also if they're doing a long tail search, pulling from the remote object store back into cache, right? So if a Splunk admin is listening right now, you know, why storage grid, right? We have this powerful policy engine, right? To automatically place data to the right media tier, to the right data center, and the protection scheme without you even have to worry about it. Uh, the durability, you know, we can achieve 15 nines of durability leveraging dual layer erasure coding and the scalability, right? We can uh, support, last time I checked, uh, 200 billion objects and over 560 petabytes in a single namespace. But what IT cares about is they want to um, develop an enterprise remote object store but they, they're caring about, they want to manage unstructured data at scale to provide secure, durable object storage to optimize workflows and reduce costs. So what that group cares about is, hey, they want something flexible and simple to deploy. Well, that's storage grid, right? We can mix and match software-defined or hardware-based appliances. Um, they want hybrid cloud enablement, right? So again, storage grid, we have uh, services to enable content replication, event notification and metadata searching on public clouds. You know, they want flexible data protection, right? Um, and you start putting all those reasons together. Um, you know, it's why IDC named uh, Storage Grid as a, a market scape, a worldwide 
uh, leader in that report. So I, I have a question for the for the team because if I remember correctly, Storage Grid also um, is kind of native multi-tenant and is already engineered and, and structured to provide some data isolation. And I was just curious, and first, correct me if I'm wrong on that, um, because it's been a couple of years. Um, but the other thing is, have you all tested or applied that in your Splunk certification or applied that using a Splunk ref customers doing that? Because uh, I, I reminisce on some use cases I had back in my, my old NetApp days. Yeah, so it is inherently multi-tenant, right? As we said, we see most storage grid instances out there running, you know, two to five distinct workloads. And this is another reason that service providers are using storage grid, right? So there right. are are mid-sized service providers using it because all those tenants are securely isolated from each other. And with our traffic classification feature, we can we can customize those workloads, right? So one of the questions like, you know, you talk to somebody, you say, how big are your objects? What's your read-write pattern? And a lot of times they don't know. Um, we know Splunk Smart Store, right? Because it's very well defined, but let's say they're bringing on a new workload. Those traffic classifications will show you exactly what that workload is, what, what's the read-write pattern, and that'll help you decide, like, do I want to add more nodes or simply more storage to my nodes? Um, and, you know, just like using Amazon S3, nobody can see your data unless you create an IAM policy to to allow them to access that data. It's one of the reasons why I asked, because, you know, obviously we see a lot of our customers who, as they expand their use case for Splunk and have more groups or organizations within their company wanting to take advantage, there is this desire to um, maintain some level of, you know, to deliver it as a service, right? To, to provide um, that, that quicker release. Because as Raj pointed out at the very beginning, the early days of Splunk was very compute storage and, and equipment tied. Right. So it was very difficult. Now we, we have a lot more flexibility in smart stores delivering a fair amount of that. You know, I can't mention the customer's name, but we have one of the biggest uh, Splunk smart store deployments in North America. Um, and they initially started off with uh, with an eight node storage grid uh, deployment over two locations. So four nodes in site A and four nodes in site B. And in about seven months, they actually increased that to a total of uh, 58 nodes just because of Obviously, it solved the uh, smart store challenge that the customer had. But again, due to the multi-tenancy capabilities, there were other use cases, you know, AI, ML, um, for, for that organization. So, um, again, it's one of the things when customers start using it, they're really surprised how easy it is to manage uh, storage grid. And right. you know, you're hitting one of the areas that slows a lot of people down, right? Everybody knows that there's tons of data in their environments that they should be taking advantage of. Um, and the fastest path to that is, you know, is always going to increase that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Once you get Splunk and you figure out how many things you can do with it, you're going to pull in more and more data. And there's a Splunk app for storage grid, meaning that you can monitor your storage grid instance that Splunk is storing its smoke store data in and then have a nice dashboard that shows you all the things that storage grid is doing inside of Splunk. Just to put a different spin to this, what Josh was saying where, um, you know, uh, an organization, um, you know, would start off with by using Splunk for their sec security or networking and then sort of expand uh, to different organizations. And uh, this is where sort of the story of uh, Storage Grid and Splunk uh, matches where, you know, today your customer might buy it for Splunk, uh, but then sooner or later they'll realize that there are other use cases to it and they sort of start expanding it to these other use cases. Uh, and 
the use cases of S3 object storage is expanding every day. Um, there are many applications that support it and many applications that are also going towards this tiering model where um, you, know, you want to tear off your cold or warm data to, this, uh, to your object storage. So as the use cases grow, you need not really buy a different product. You can basically use the, the existing storage grid and expand that uh, and basically uh, leverage that deployment for, for your new workloads. So with the qualification, you know, what does that entail? Is it you know, a certificate? Is it like a place on the Splunk website? Is it just the ability to claim certification? You know, what does that give you with, uh, when you have a certification process like that? I think it's just a validation you know, from each vendor, right? That you know, if I go to Splunk and I tell them I'm using NetApp Storage Grid, they know, you know that they've got a trusted you know, backend that's been tested before. And you know, the opposite is true as well, right? We can understand that workload. Just shows the two companies are going and you know have an understanding of each other's products. And, Raj, and just to add to that, th- there was a lot of lessons learned um, as we you know went through the testing, and some of them did surprise us. And um, you know, things that we could or the advantages we could provide to our customers um, were were a lot. And that is something that we do want to highlight. Um, you know, after we get we or um, once the certification thing is done. And Josh, there is going to be a big piece of paper with like a stamped embossed gold seal is what I understand that will be delivered maybe next week. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll double check on that and see if we can pull that off. You know, be like a one of those big, huge checks that they giant do when something. Yeah, a big giant check. And we will Splunk hang this in our, Exactly. We're going to hang it in our headquarters, which is right down the street from Splunk. So because now we're neighbors. It's a major award. Well, I'll, I'll add one. I'll add one little bit about the the certification. Um, it's it's certainly a validation, and it provides a lot of guidance to to help our joint customers implement a solution with our two products um, successfully, quickly, and repeatedly. That's one of the and the key thing, though. Really, I think is confidence that you know as you choose to put these solutions together and you know build build these product build a solution with these products together. That validation you can have confidence that it is going to work as intended. And it's really important, especially when the data and and how you utilize data and how that data is driving your business decisions and customer success, you've got to have confidence that it's going to deliver for you when you implement it. So is there going to be a a white paper that kind of goes through this certification and and is treated as a validated architecture? I mean, or is this just going to basically be a, you know, hey, we're certified with Splunk? We do have a TR uh, that is ready, and uh, you know it'll be published uh, once we go through this. And I'll let JV add more uh, more on where we are at that. We've already created, um, completed the TR, and like Joseph said, we'll wait um, until we get the certification to release that. We also have um, blogs and videos and um, additional collateral that will be. Um, created and release um, once we get the certification. Yeah, and uh, Justin, I would think to what Steven said at the beginning, uh, maybe we can include it in the liner notes of the podcast, but uh, one of our customers, uh, Highland Software, at our NetApp Insight Conference, uh, they gave a great 20-minute presentation on uh, their experience and how easy it was to transition from Splunk uh, Classic to Splunk Smart Store powered by NetApp Storage Grid. So and that's, that's available for everyone. You don't need to you know, register for that. We can send a link. And uh, I always like to have customers kind of do our speaking. Uh, it's always good to hear from them. So earlier, you know, you mentioned that you had a lot of lessons learned in this certification process. Can you go through a few of those for me and you kind of tell us what 
th- sort of things you ran across and, and how you address them? Yeah, I would say if a customer is going to begin this whole uh, smart store uh, transition or Splunk Classic, I think that the biggest thing that they'll have to do, especially for Splunk admins, is really build those relationships with their uh, IT counterparts, which typically um, always haven't been the best. Right. I know we've gone through some uh, during this entire testing process, some some ups and downs regarding the regarding the, the certification. But with proper planning, um, you know, engaging with, with NetApp, uh, we can uh, streamline uh, this this migration process. So, um, hey, JB, why don't you talk about I know one of the scenarios we had to run, we actually had to convert uh, from a non smart store to a smart store uh, deployment. And the amount of throughput and how much data we did, I think it was like in 20 minutes, right? We did almost 24 terabytes of data. Is that about right? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. And I uh, will say that was probably the test I enjoyed the most because it was pretty easy to do, right? So we already have the storage grid, the single namespace, and the active-active uh, uh, cluster configured. And then, like you said, we went um, around 14 to 16 days of ingesting data. We had about 24 terabytes, 25 terabytes of data. And then we go in and basically um, add the parameters inside of the um, config file from the indexers. And then um, basically from there, you know, it was immediate kickoff of the migration from the classic architecture to the smart smart store architecture. And uh, again, it took about 20 minutes to transfer all that data. Um, We saw like a hive uh, five, six, plus gigabytes per second. Um, very, very fast, high performance um, migration. It's very seamless. And JB, from a storage grid point of view, um, the storage grid environment from a CPU and memory point of view, uh, the resources was around 30%, 35% during that migration test? Yeah, it was around 30, 35%. Um, it barely broke a sweat um, during the migration. I think the, the best lesson learned for any customer doing this is it's really not the technology it's getting the key stakeholders to to work together and and to join architect the solution and that's where uh, NetApp we can provide uh, that guidance to customers who are looking to deploy a smart store in their environment just just another challenge is this is all done of course during COVID right so if a power supply failed or something like that you know getting into the lab was difficult Um, you know this was a lot of that remote work kind of made things tough too, right? Just because you couldn't just go in the lab anytime you wanted. You had to, you know, get, get approved to come in, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that added some challenges as well. It's non-technical, but, you know, just for people listening in the future, that's what we did. Yeah, so I'll, I'll add another thing too um, when it comes to, like, you know, being in an admin role, architect role, uh, and doing the tests, you know, it's very, very key for both both sides, the Splunk user side and the IT teams to be uh, in harmony and sync with the requirements in order to provide um, the solution on the back end in order to provide that business continuity and uh, performance and resiliency um, with your storage tier. Uh, because when it, whenever you're using Splunk and um, smart store is enabled, like it's enabled, there's, there's nothing really more you have to do the intelligent tiering from the storage, uh, smart storage side takes care of everything. Um, you know, you have your retention, your you have your retention policies, compliance, and all the things you would configure on the on the um, indexer side. And you know, once it's implemented 
and in place, you know, it's good to go. It's just more so about knowing what the requirements are, implementing those requirements in your environment and going about your business as far as getting the intelligence and the data that you're searching. Hey, JP and Joseph, I think one thing, um, if there's a Splunk admin listening to this, is probably one thing they're probably not aware of is the roles of local load balancers and the uh, global load balancer in a multi-site deployment. Um, can you spend like a few minutes to kind of talk about, you know, what storage would have to offer with the SG100 and the SG1000? Um, so maybe someone who's not as familiar with storage grid maybe can understand if they hear those terms, uh, you know, being spoken by their IT infrastructure folks. So we used uh, two two load balances. That is, one was one was for global load balancing. So that was helping us with the multi-site setup. So let's say you know there's traffic coming from a site. Uh, let's say that's in Sunnyvale. Uh, global load balancer would direct that traffic to uh, to the local remote store in Sunnyvale. Uh, and similarly, if you have another site that, that was in Arizona, it's basically uh, confining that traffic to Arizona remote store. Uh, so global load balancer was doing that job. For our testing, we used this load balancer called uh, uh, loadbalancer.org, which is basically the enterprise version of HA proxy. Now the traffic wasn't going through the global load balancer. It was, it was just acting as a smart DNS. Uh, now coming to the second layer, uh, that is the uh, you know, the local traffic manager, that was basically to distribute load across our storage nodes. Um, so there are a couple of uh, advantages that come along with it if you use our load balancer. That is, uh, you can have something called traffic classification where you can monitor your traffic. Uh, and I think Steve also touched on this a bit uh, previously. Um, you can monitor it, you can apply limits to it. So let's say you, your Splunk is your most important workload versus uh, you have uh, something, some other workload that's running that's not really important. You can reserve a, a, a good chunk of your bandwidth for Splunk and uh, let the other application use the rest of the bandwidth. So these sort of features come along with it. And when it comes to failure scenarios um, where you fail a storage node or you, you fail your remote store, um, the, the failover happens seamlessly with, with these two. Uh, that is, if a remote store, uh, if a site um, in, in a remote store fails, you, you basically, uh, your global load balancer redirects the traffic to the secondary site. Versus if a storage node fails, your local load balancer um, handles that. And at all times, uh, your data is available and your ingest continues to happen. There might be that additional latency, but uh, you know your workload is never affected by it. All right, Joseph, if I wanted to find more information about Storage Grid and the Splunk Im implementation, where would I do that? We've worked on a couple of collaterals that are uh, still pending and we'll be publishing it soon. So it should be available on the NetApps website. Um, and the blog will also be posted um, soon. That will also be a good place to uh, to basically read about the work that we, have, me and JB have done. Um, and lastly, uh, I guess we have uh, you know insight sessions that we we've, we've done last year uh, along with our customer. Um, and also, I guess uh, JB, do you want to add um, a few more data points? Oh, I think I think you covered it all. All right, Josh, Stephen, Raj, James, and Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today and, and telling us all about the Storage Grid and Splunk Smart Store certification process here. Uh, so again, if we wanted to reach you, Josh, how do we do that? Uh, you'll be able to find me on Twitter, Josh underscore Atwell. All right, and Raj? 
Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can just search for Raj Grewal, or you can send me an email at my NetApp email address, uh, raj.grewal, G-R-E-W-A-L, at netapp.com. And Joseph? Um, you can reach me on my email, uh, my first name or last name at netapp.com, or on Twitter, uh, at the rate Joseph and Tap. All right. And Stephen? Best way to get me is going to be my NetApp email address. It's S-P-R-U-C-H at netapp.com. And finally, James. Uh, you can reach me on LinkedIn, uh, James Bradshaw, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. And my NetApp email, J-B-R-A-D-S-H-A at netapp.com. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netapp.com or send us a tweet at netapp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you'd like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Josh Atwell from Splunk. Stephen Pershnewski, James Bradshaw, Raj Grewal, and Joseph Hintilferamo for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.